The Your Mark on the World show is made possible by our sponsors, including Gate Global Impact and Curtin McConkie. Welcome to Your Mark on the World, bringing you another changemaker with champion of social good, Devin D. Thorpe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ormark on the World show. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe, and I'm a contributor at Forbes covering social entrepreneurship and impact investing. And our guest today is David Weald, chairman and CEO of Weald & Co. Uh, company. Thank you very much, David, for joining us. We're just thrilled to have you. Thanks, Devin. Good to see you again. We started a minute or two late because you and I had a minute or two to talk before the show started, and we got talking about what we're talking about today, and it really is just a fascinating topic uh, for me. You really uh, played an instrumental role in the development of the JOBS Act and have a real passion for uh, growing the economy. Give us a sense of the problem you see in terms of the the markets and the reason we're seeing so few IPOs. Well, first of all, there's a there's a lot of uh, pop wisdom out there. Um, you know, people believe that venture capital is has uh, stepped in to fill the capital void in U.S. markets and private equity. And actually, there's an economist, Robert Leighton, who's done some work that shows that the number of startups or the percentage of startups in the U.S. economy went from about 15 percent of all companies back in the late 70s all the way down to 8 percent today. So we have a crisis on our hands. And you know, one of the things that you report on, Devin, is social impact. I like to say that we're the greatest social impact story ever told, because what we're passionate about is getting more capital into the hands of scientists, engineers, and entrepreneurs, because we see them as the folks that are going to find pro- solutions to the key problems of our time. I, mean, I have very little faith in the ability of, of uh, human beings to restrain themselves, like when we talk about global warming, but I have immense faith and confidence in the capital market's ability to finance uh, scientists and engineers will find solutions to global warming or cures to cancer. And so I think that actually getting the level of activity up in, in, in those parts of the economy, because small business creates all the jobs. And as you know, uh, we are having a real jobs crisis on our hands globally. And part of it is because we created these market structures that were hyper-efficient that didn't support uh, capital access for small companies and, and, and aftermarket support. They're all related. Let's talk about the problems a little bit deeper. What are the regulatory issues that you see that have created this? Is it just uh, the, the hyper-efficient markets, the, the uh, program trading and the uh, flash trading? What, what, what's going on that creates the, the lack of IPOs in our markets? Well, you know, when you see things like high frequency trading and flash crashes, a lot of that is uh, is symptomatic. The real problem is, is that we created a one size fits all market structure that was was optimized to trade in innately liquid stocks. Right. Where there are thousands of buyers and sellers looking at Intel or Exxon at any particular point in time. And in some respects, the best thing to do is to get out of the way and let those order books interact. They're going to trade just fine. I think you still have to worry about some of the gaps, the you know, the flash crashes, mini flash crashes that are caused. I'm not sure that's been totally thought through uh, by the regulators. But the key thing that they did was they took this hyper efficient, low cost market structure, one size fits all, and they applied it to every stock in the market. And that includes 
the small cap stocks on NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange and the over-the-counter stock market. And so what happened was these stocks trade asymmetrically, big buyer, no seller, big seller, no buyer, and you need human beings to get in there, commit capital to create liquidity and to get on the phone and market what we used to call the old competition of ideas. And by taking all of the, all of the stock salesmen and brokers out of, the, out of the middle and taking all of the market makers out of the middle in terms of committing capital, I think predictably collapsed liquidity. Institutions you know, abandoned many of these smaller capitalization stocks. And so now the cost of capital and the access to capital, the whole ecosystem is deteriorated. We had 160 plus investment banks back in 1994 that took at least one, uh, one small IPO public. And today that number is down to just a little bit above 30. Okay, so, so that whole ecosystem that supported entrepreneurial access to capital has largely collapsed and we have to build that back. And the way that we're gonna do it is we're gonna create economic incentives in markets, or we'll also, one of the things that, that my company is working on is the technology to kind of crash the cost of finding smaller, more appropriate investors, just better, faster, and less expensively. Now, David, some interesting things happened in the JOBS Act and you worked closely on that to bring that about. And a lot of it was intended to increase access to capital for uh, small enterprises. Uh, what's working? What's not working? Uh, what more do we need? Well, I, I, let's start with uh, title, you know, uh, the, 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 the four major titles, titles one through four, uh, that were just really four square focused on capital formation. Title one went into effect immediately. That was the uh, so-called new category of emerging growth company. And, and the two major things that that or three things that that does, which are important, uh, one is it, it, it created a, a testing the waters provision. So for heavy IP companies like biotechnology companies, the old way of doing it was you get on the road on the IPO and you spend one 45 minute meeting with an investor in a very complicated company on it, with an institutional investor and they have to make a decision and nobody's going to invest five million dollars for five years on the basis of one 45 minute meeting in, on an IPO roadshow. So you can actually get out now in pre-market, there's a bright line safe harbor meeting with institutional investors. And so you, you, so you can develop that kind of following by doing some upfront work. And as a consequence, we've seen a much more, partly as a consequence of this, we've seen a much better uh, small IPO market over the last few years, which I think has got terrifically positive uh, in, uh, uh, impact for healthcare over the long run. Obviously, these are the guys that are going to help cure cancer. Um, the second thing is confidential filings, right? So this is a risk mitigation piece for companies. You can file now. And if, if you can't get through the SEC or there's some disclosure issues or accounting issues and you decide to pull the transaction, uh, you can do that without basically airing all of your secrets in public. Um, so that's a great risk mitigation tool. And I think that's been incredibly well received by the market. And then there's something which uh, was a provision that at the 11th hour, we actually uh, worked with uh, the House and the New York Stock Exchange to have put into the act, which was to get the SEC to investigate the impact of tick sizes or decimalization on, um, uh, which is the aftermarket economic incentives uh, on, on capital formation. And the tick size, for those that are watching, is a little inside Wall Street. 
but it's the minimum price increment that you can trade a stock in. And all stocks in this country are essentially traded at one penny tick sizes. And so what the SEC is going to test in a pilot coming up uh, later this in 2016 is to try and see how uh, nickel tick sizes uh, in smaller capitalization stocks will impact trading and liquidity. So with that test, will they just choose a, a cohort of stocks, uh, uh, small cap stocks to trade in the nickel increment, and then we can compare that to the rest of the market, uh, including perhaps an identified cohort of similar stocks that aren't trading that way? Actually, that's exactly what they're doing. There are four buckets. There'll be a control group, and then there are three different test buckets, including uh, testing some controversial things like the trade at rule. There are some people that have said, you know, because the, the tick size pilot itself was designed by the stock exchanges that, you know, that, you know, so you end up with a little bit of misbehavior in the design of some of this stuff. Some of it's overly complicated. And so, you know, we have real questions about whether or not the control group is actually going to be a real adequate control, because if you don't have real representation of the different types of market makers in each of the four buckets, you know, some some people pull out of one bucket, but you can't. But and that's not controlled for. Then it's not a real test. So we'll see. I mean, you know, it's it's it's, it's you don't want to run into a situation where it's garbage in and, and garbage out. And and one of the problems with a short term tick size pilot is that it's really not going to tell you whether or not people would invest in bringing back the ecosystem and more equity research to support these companies and more people to make markets, commit capital. Uh, you know, there's always a chance that 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 this won't become the new way of doing things. So you're not going to make major investments in human capital, which I think is really important uh, to the quality of small cap markets. Yeah, we could just drill down on this for forever, but we ought to jump to Title II because I know there are a lot of people that are interested in uh, in Title II and Title III and, and Title IV. I want to get to Title IV for sure because I think that's uh, kind of the hottest area, but let's cover what you think the impact of Title II and the general solicitation provisions have been so far in capital formation? Well, there, there are quite a number of what general solicitation does, and that actually came right out of a paper. It was a recommendation, I think, on page 30 of a wake-up call for America. Um, it, you know, what, what, what we had, uh, had hypothesized or theorized was, look, it doesn't matter who you market to. You know, when Mark Zuckerberg was, was before he was taking Facebook public, I mean, he was going to be awfully concerned about getting on TV and so-called conditioning the market. And, um, and what we were, we're saying with, with private placements, it shouldn't matter who you talk to. It matters who you actually uh, take money from, right? So why should non-accredited investors uh, not hear the story I think it frankly would be better culturally for us to allow everybody to hear the story. And so we now have a general solicitation rule. I think that one of the problems with the rule is, is that it's a little onerous from the standpoint of it, it, if you go through regular reg D private placement, individual investors can check a box and declare that they are accredited. And, uh, and that's all that needs to happen. So it's a self-selection process here. You have to have a third party effectively identify and verify on some level that that individual that invests is accredited. And so that adds a, another layer. And that's been a little bit of friction that I think is, has, uh, has, has, has made it maybe uh, less, uh, less uh, widespread, less easy to adopt on a widespread basis than otherwise might be the case. I mean, my guess is, is that they may modify those rules over time because 
I'm not sure that that level of that level of control is frankly necessary. At the end of the day, people should be subject to a fraud statute. And if they lie about their accredited investor status, um, that shouldn't be the companies that's raising capital. They're probably in my in my my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, Title Three, we can almost skip over that. Title Three, uh, the true uh, crowdfunding uh, for non-accredited investors, very exciting. All kinds of discussion about that for the last three and a half years. The rules are pending, uh, but we still haven't been issued. So as yet, no impact, right? Well, that's right, except that um, that what I would say is, is that the word um, in the circles that I travel in is, is that uh, – uh, uh, that the commission uh, is poised to release the rules in the next 60 days or so. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing too. Let's keep fingers crossed, at least those of us who are excited about that. So let's jump to Title IV, uh, Reg A, Reg A Plus changes. Uh, implemented in June of this year, uh, really has created quite a stir, a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, I've done a couple of episodes on that. What's your take on the impact that's having in capital formation? Well, in general, when rules are changed at the SEC, and I've heard this from Marty Dunn, who was a former commission, uh, former uh, head of the division of corporation finance, is an attorney at Morrison and Foster now, um, and, and this has been the tradition. Linda Quinn, who I had done some some innovation, was another head of the division of corporation finance many years ago, tragically passed away. But the SEC, or you know, many of the insiders are always surprised at how long it takes the market to adopt and take advantage of new rule changes. It, you know, very often it takes a year. And the reason is, is that, that your securities council is concerned that their clients not be the first one because they might miss something from a liability standpoint. So it's a little bit, the metaphor that I use is it's like penguins at the edge of an ice flow and everybody's waiting for the first ones to jump in to make sure that they don't get eaten by ch- sharks. And once once you get a few proof points out there, then steadily people have more courage of their convictions to kind of get involved. My understanding on Reg A right now is, is that there were about 30 transactions that were filed with the SEC. There's about 24 that are still in place. I guess six were with, you know, withdrawn for some reason. About half of them are tier one, half of them are tier two, which is a surprise to people. I think most people thought that because you'd file under tier two because that gives you an exemption from state blue sky regulation. Right. And so even smaller offerings would, would elect to do tier two, but that so far I'm hearing is, hasn't been the case. There must be a lot of New York offerings as a result. I mean, cause doesn't New York have a friendly state regulator and you could raise all your money in New York. Yeah. Uh, that's more easily true. Than in Utah or Idaho. Right. I mean, if you if you go to a big state and uh, you're raising a small amount of money and most of your your capital raising is going to be local uh, and you know that you can get it passed, then, you know, then why not file under tier one? Because it's got an an even uh, it it has a very, 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 very slim down next to no requirements. So, yeah, I think on some level it is, you know, fairly Fairly logical. I think what's really fascinated most of us is that none of us expected to see Reg A plus. And by the way, I testified in Congress in support of this bill, and some of the provisions actually came directly from me, like the bad actor provision was a suggestion we made. Uh, the, um, uh, the what became the tier two disclosure requirements was a suggestion that we made. We feel that information standards ultimately are absolutely critical to the aftermarket. People need an audited financial statement, and so. 
Um, so these things were, were widely adopted. But what's been fascinating to me is I don't think that I anticipated that Regulation A plus would be co-opted for crowdfunding. And it appears right now that that Regulation A plus, maybe because of the lack of, of, of Title III rules, but also because you can raise up to $50 million in Regulation A plus, and there's a cap on on Title III of only a million dollars, that it, it may be that Regulation A plus becomes the crowdfunding uh, construct of choice. Yeah, it, it is an interesting development. I've seen that with the uh, Elio Motors uh, effort. I don't know if you follow that one, but they, you know, have been testing the waters and they're, I think they have $35 million of interest expressed last I heard. And uh, so it seems to be working really well, uh, but uh, very much a crowdfunding style offering in that case. So it will be interesting to see how that, how all of these things that uh, uh, some have called crowdfunding across the board from Reg A to Title II, Title III, all of that kind of mushed together, but it, it will be exciting. What do you see as being, what, what are the additional changes you think we need to fire up that IPO market to the level where you think it should be? And where do you think it should be relative to where it is? Well, we have, uh, the legislation has been a bit patch, patchwork in general. And I, and I love to be able to sit down holistically and look at small, co- we need scale disclosure, right? Small companies the smallest companies can't really absorb any kind of a regulatory burden. I mean, I, I, I am a, a big believer that we've uh, uh, we've overthought and way overregulated uh, crowdfunding. There's a way. I mean, for instance, if the interesting limitation to me was, you know, that that a public investor, a non-accredited investor, could only invest five thousand dollars. That's a great way to limit risk, right? And and with uh, blockchain technology, for example. You sh- and other other approaches, you should be able to figure out that indeed only one individual, if they put their social security number, is that they can't take multiple shots and and subvert that that restriction. So that's a great risk mitigation tool. I think when you do that, you know why do we care how much money? Why should there be a million dollar cap? Uh, you know there was a lot of concern years ago. I had this conversation with Jack Coffey, who is the professor of law at the Columbia, and he testified in the Senate, and Jack. You know, had had um, had called the uh, the uh, Title Three something to the effect of the Boiler Room Act of 2011, 2012, and 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 I made a distinction. I had a discussion with him where I said, "Look, Jack, you know, I think portals are incredibly different than broker intermediated trades, where a broker has an incentive to sell a product. Here, if a portal does a, a bad job for the market, they're going to go out of business, right?" The crowd is a paradigm shift. The crowd is going to do a terrific job at, at isolating fraudsters and controlling for that. And so, you know, we, we have, ironically, we have things like Kickstarter and Indiegogo that are totally not regulated. And, you know, the, the, the sky hasn't fallen. And guess what? They're selling people things, okay? But those people don't get to participate in the upside of the company at all. So, you know, which is worse? And I would argue that you know, we need to get out of the way of crowdfunding portals, not broker-intermediated trades, let it, it'll be very Darwinian. We had this same discussion years ago about peer-to-peer auction markets. And guess what? eBay emerged. Uh, everybody's incredibly happy with the performance of eBay. It's done a wonderful job of creating approaches and technologies to get 
the bad actors sort of to limit the exposure in that marketplace. Otherwise, it wouldn't have thrived and survived, and, and yet it has. And so I, I think that, that there's a lot of old school thinking. You know, most of the securities regulators, uh, you know, are, are of a certain age and um, they haven't grown up with the crowd. Um, and so I think it, you know, that, that getting people to think a little bit differently uh, and to be a little bit more worried about what could be um, in terms of the potential of these markets, as opposed to everything that could go wrong, I, particularly in a marketplace where, look, I mean, labor participation rates in this country are back to where they were. We've done full circle all the way down to where they were in 1978, okay? The jobs market fell apart in this country when we started to make these aftermarkets really hyper-efficient, okay? It's, it's just, it, you can totally overlay it on that. And, and, and what you, when you look at uh, um, uh, 16 to 19 year olds, labor participation rates are way down. So young kids that just have high school educations are not getting you know, into the economy. That's really, really bad. It's particularly bad for, uh, for young African-American males in, you know, in particular. You, know, you need full employment to get kids that are on the bench into the economy and to teach them a skill. Um, and if you look at the only age demographic that's really increased has been the over 65 group and it's skyrocketed and that's because people can't afford to retire. Yeah. So I think that if you look at where jobs come from, they come from small companies. You look at way back at the beginning of the interview, you look at um, that at the startup rates going from 15% of all companies down to 8%. You know, we got to get out of the way and get this economy moving. We got to create jobs. We got to get money into the hands of entrepreneurs. That's what, you know, Wielding Co. is all about. And that's our partners. That's what our lobbying efforts are about. Um, because we think that this is essential to creating a, ultimately an, a secure, uh, vibrant uh, America where the American dream still has has promise. And, um, and I... I think increasingly we're getting people to understand that, but boy, I'll tell you, it is it is a struggle because it's not intuitive. the The, the popular wisdom is is that if you have low cost low cost trading, it's uh, it's good for everybody. And in point of fact, you know, the average African American in this country has a, a net worth, according to the Pew Institute, of eleven thousand dollars. They derive no benefit from low cost trading because they don't, on average, have money in the markets. Okay, so we got. 20% of American kids are living below the poverty line, right? So this, there's a paradox in stock markets where actually investors, if you charge more and you support these markets more robustly, investors will do better because it will drive economic growth and economic growth rates ultimately drive investor returns and consumers will benefit because there'll be greater, greater innovation in consumer, in products that benefit consumers quality of life. And so Taken together, you know, we need to get uh, we need to get uh, the politicians, the regulators, to really think uh, uh, with a bit more uh, vision uh, about how these markets are structured and what they need to do to drive economic growth and opportunity again. Because I, as sure as I'm sitting here, Devin, this is, has been the Achilles' heel of the U.S. economy. Yeah. There seems to be great evidence of that. Well, David, our time is up. Before we go, please tell people how they can 
follow up with you or learn more about your thinking, learn more about Wield and Company, engage you for something? Uh, how do people get you? Well, it's uh, easy. My email is david.wield, W-E-I-L-D, at wieldco.com. And, uh, you know, I respond to all my email. And uh, and uh, probably the easiest thing to do, of course, uh, the, the website's uh, just uh, wieldco.com. And, uh, and you can track me down through the website as well. Fantastic. Well, David, we really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us today. And we wish you every success in making these market changes that we need to restart our economy. So thank you very much, David. Thank you, Devin. It's good to see you again. All right. Thank you. Let's do some good. Thanks. At the intersection of financial services and social media, Gate Global Impact, GGI, uses new market infrastructure to facilitate investments in organizations that deliver a societal, environmental, and or a cause-related benefit in addition to a financial return. Regardless of company size or business challenge, clients count on Curtin McConkie to solve problems, help realize opportunities, and provide high-caliber legal and business thinking without breaking their legal budgets. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded via Google Hangouts on Air and is available at youtube.com forward slash Devonthorpe. Subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher or iTunes by searching for Your Mark on the World. Every weekday, Devon hosts a CEO, celebrity, entrepreneur or other changemaker here on the Your Mark on the World show to inspire and prepare you to make your mark. Devin is a champion of social good, writing about, advocating for, and advising people who are doing good. He is a Forbes contributor who is a recognized thought leader in social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding. To book Devin as a speaker, visit devinthorpe.com. Learn more about Devin's work at yourmarkontheworld.com.